forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessica Crispin. Public Intellectual is a podcast supported by its listeners. If you would like to become a supporter, please go to patreon.com slash publicintellectual. You can catch up on our bonus episodes, which now include two separate series. The first being Film Club, wherein Eileen Giselle, a film critic and poet, and I discuss the films that we've been watching. And Jessa makes Mike read a book by a woman, wherein I force my friend and lovely writer, Michael Scott Moore, to read books by women because he doesn't. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual for all this thrilling content and more. I find the conversation about the housing crisis plaguing several American and European cities to be quite limited. Often we start to discuss gentrification and displacement after it has already happened. So I wanted to talk to Randy Shaw, who is the director of the Tenderloin Housing Clinic and the author of the new book, Generation Priced Out, Who Gets to Live in the New Urban America, because he writes about actual strategies that somebody facing eviction or displacement can do, and also how cities can strategize to create less hostile environments and retain their city's ethnic and racial diversity. So we talked to Shaw about how to solve these problems and how convenient it is to think of these problems as something inevitable, something that has already happened. When gentrification is talked about in the media, there's always a sense of it being inevitable, as if there's nothing that can be done to stop it from happening. And so you talk in your book about very specific um, acts that cities, nonprofits, and citizens can do to prevent displacement and rising rents and so on. Um, So I just wanted to start by... I guess first asking why you think it's it's talked about as this unstoppable force um, and then your history and sort of working with gentrification. Well, it, you know, I, I think, you know, because I have written a prior book about my experience in the Tenderloin neighborhood called the Tenderloin Sex, Crime and Resistance in the Heart of San Francisco, I know that you can stop gentrification because we've done it through policies in the Tenderloin where the one neighborhood in San Francisco that will never be gentrified. But I think... I think the reason that this idea of inevitability, which is very pervasive in high housing cost cities, is that it justify homeowners opposing new apartments. And as I say in the book, I think all the prior books on gentrification have primarily focused on these big luxury projects, which then displace people directly and causes gentrification. And what I argue in Generation Priced Out is gentrification has more commonly occurred in city after city because homeowners do not allow apartments to be built in their neighborhood. And so they make housing a lot more expensive and that causes gentrification without any development. And that's kind of what I think the point has been missed. Gentrification has primarily been caused in this country without development, but just by letting an artificial scarcity of housing drive prices up. And it 
often seems to be talked about in this way that it's a personal problem. Like, um, you know, you as a uh, millennial moving into a uh, historically Latino neighborhood or something like that, you're the problem, um, which sort of lets everybody from the developers uh, to homeowners associations and and so on, like off the hook, which I find um, uh, sort of stunts the conversation. Yeah, well, that that's sort of the theme of Generation Priced Out. It's about the, the homeowner associations, which are dominated by boomers, end up blaming millennials, who are often the ones paying the ridiculously high rents, instead of saying, wait a minute, we're not letting apartments get built, and so therefore there's no place for millennials to live except for the renter neighborhoods that Latinos or African Americans are living in, because we won't let millennials live in our neighborhoods because it's homeowner only. And so it's been this exclusionary zoning policies, which have really driven up the price of housing in, in all the so-called progressive cities in this country. Um, so when we talk about these homeowner associations, um, what is their what is their role traditionally within a neighborhood? Um, I mean, you talk about the, the sort of um, these arguments against uh, building homeless shelters and so on, but what benefit are do, are they supposed to have in a in a community? Well, what they would say is they're there protecting neighborhood quote unquote character. But what has happened in city after city, as I discuss in the book, is neighborhood character has been become defined as not letting renters live in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. and that's not originally what neighborhood character was supposed to be about. And when you tear down a small single family home and build a monster home that's no more that's supposedly consistent with the character where if you built the fourplex somehow that's out of character so homeowner associations have profited the homeowners have profited greatly seen incredible appreciation in the value of their properties by limiting supply so there's a financial interest in homeowners not letting products be built not letting housing be built and so it has not made any sense for our city policy to give economically self-interested people the control over land use. But yet that's what most of our progressive cities in this country, from San Francisco to Seattle to Portland to Austin, Minneapolis, Denver, Los Angeles, all the cities I talk about in the book, that's what they've done. And that's been the problem. That's why I think cities have the power to reverse this process and make themselves more affordable. Yeah, that was what was interesting with seeing how it's so many of these cities that present themselves as being very sort of progressive politically, um, like Austin and San Francisco and so on that are, that have some of the most, um, uh, the biggest difficulties in, um, racial segregation and, and displacement. Um, I lived in Austin, Texas for five years, um, Mm. starting in 1999 and that five-year span was, it was shocking um, at how quickly the neighborhoods on the East were changing. Um, but of course, like, you know, Texas property law, as, yeah. as you talk about in your book, is like a whole other thing. <laughs> so you know what's interesting about Austin? First, many, many of your listeners may remember a movie called Slacker, which was mm-hmm. made in 1994 about Austin 20-somethings. And I always say that that movie couldn't be made today because if you're a slacker, you can't afford to live in Austin. It's become so expensive. And what distinguishes Austin's and all the cities I write about in the book is that they, these are cities whose public officials bemoan increased segregation, the loss of racial diversity, and yet they have policies that further it. As I describe my chapter in the book on Austin, 
at the same time, the city officials are saying it's just terrible how segregated Austin is and how we don't, how we're losing people of color. It, as I describe in the book, a 240-unit apartment building housing low-income families of color was just torn down, all the families evicted, and today is an Oracle campus. Well, cities need to step up and match their rhetoric with actions. Yeah, the Oracle um, incident is interesting in how quickly tech sort of transformed the Austin yes. landscape. Um, can you talk about that case specifically and and how tech has become both an, an actor of gentrification, but also like this kind of weird scapegoat um, in uh, or an overly simplified uh, reason for the gentrification of places like San Francisco and Austin? Right. Well, as I described in Generation Price, that, you, you know, it's been really wrong to blame tech workers who themselves are the ones paying the really high rents and everything. It's the companies and this, it's really the city councils. I mean, what I say in the book, so, so this 240 unit apartment building right on a lake, like the main lake in Austin, the, the families used to come down and walk their dogs and have barbecues. Nobody asked Oracle to provide any housing. Oracle was not directly involved. It wasn't like Oracle bought the building and demolished it. It was the prior owner who saw an economic opportunity to take that land and make it an Oracle campus by tearing down the housing. And as you mentioned, Texas law doesn't let you stop demolitions unless it's a historic building. But overall, tech is has, you know, if you look from 2012, it's really the, the second tech boom that has brought in people of high incomes. And when cities don't build housing, the only place these tech workers can live are in existing housing and existing neighborhoods, which drives up the price and drives out other people. So it's really the lack of supply in so many cities that has contributed to the tech boom having such influence and displacement and gentrification. And the gap between um, sort of the populations moving in and, and housing being built, I, before reading the numbers in your book, I had no idea that it was such an, an extreme gap. Yeah. Um, and it, besides, you know, um, the neighborhood associations and the difficulty in finding placement, but um, what is the, do cities, different cities have reasonings for why they're not building housing? Well, it, you know, this is the problem is that when, you know, when you have companies like Apple just is opening 10,000 more jobs in Austin. So Austin, which now has a pro-housing city council, hopefully will get more housing built. But when you have a city like San Francisco, which is widely seen as the most tenant town in the United States and the most highest percentage of tenants, people would be amazed to learn that over half of our buildable land, you can't build a triplex. You can build a mansion in San Francisco in, in over half of our land, but you can't build a triplex or fourplex or any real apartment building. So when you think, how can this be? We're, we're adding all these jobs. Where are these people going to live? Well, the homeowners don't care. And we have 120,000 people commuting every day by car from Sacramento, the state capital, to the Bay Area. And just think of what that means because they can't afford housing anywhere closer. Just think what that means for climate change and greenhouse gas emissions when we're the homeowners in San Francisco are saying, we're not letting you build here. You go live in Sacramento. That doesn't do it work very well for the for the for the Green New Deal types. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so what should, you know, Amazon announced that it's building these new campuses outside of D.C. and outside of Queens. Yeah. Um, what can these cities start to do now in order to prepare for this influx? Because, you know, neither of these places are uh, have a sort of overrun of housing as it is. Um, and both of them have, you know, Queens is in the process of, of gentrification um, and D.C. has had problems for a while. Um, so what can they do moving forward um, that are actual solutions rather than just sort of bemoaning Amazon's uh, arrival? Well, I think Queens, uh, and it, it's really the fault of the Mayor de Blasio administration for getting of supporting Amazon and subsidizing Amazon's arrival, because I say in the book that based on the Seattle experience, uh, anyone who win, quote unquote, wins the competition for the second headquarters is a big loser. You have to have figure out a way to have housing development planned to take on these kind of big new new job creators. And that uh, Amazon would have been better off to go to a place like Charleston, South Carolina, someplace that didn't already have a hyper inflated housing market than to go to Queens, which is just going to really make which has been more affordable than other parts in the, and much of Brooklyn. So cities have to plan. And what we've learned in the Bay Area is is you have cities like Palo Alto and Cupertino that don't ever want to build any housing. And so they all the jobs they're creating, people go to Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco, and drive up the rents there. And that's why increasingly you're seeing Californians pushing for a state solution because local governments oppose housing. They don't want to build anything. Um, so can you talk about uh, your work with the Tenderloin Housing Clinic um, and the specific um, situation of San Francisco a little bit? Well, yes, I, I, I founded the, the housing clinic in, in 1980 and, and I've been here ever since. And, you know, we, we house homeless people. We lease hotels, SRO hotels, and we house homeless people. We're the largest provider of permanent housing for homeless single adults in, in San Francisco. We house over 2,000 people and pay the rent for almost 3,000. So, we are on the cutting edge of, of the homelessness issue. Uh, but what I have found and what led me to write the book was really in the wake of the ghost ship fire in Oakland on December 2nd, 2016, where 36 young people died because they were in an unsafe warehouse in Oakland. And it led me to realize that it used to be that if you couldn't afford San Francisco, you could at least afford Oakland. And now that wasn't true anymore. And how in San Francisco, if you were a teacher, a nurse, a firefighter, a union hotel worker, if you've always been able to live in San Francisco, you can't afford it anymore. And that mm -hmm. the population that I, I serve in my day-to-day -day work are, are people who need federal subsidies and most, or state subsidies. Most tenants who have problems in America need to have their rent subsidized and only 25% of eligible households get those subsidies. But teachers and firefighters and nurses aren't eligible for federal housing assistance. They used to be able to afford rent on their own and in these cities, they no longer can because of misguided policies. Um, so this is probably a bit of a digression, but with the ghost ship situation, um, you know, the blame sort of immediately was um, pushed onto the people who ran the space and criminal charges were brought against them for for the neglect. Um, and, and I think there were manslaughter charges. Um, and it just seems like... Uh, a lot of the media coverage did talk about the impossible housing situation in the Bay Area, but um, 
I don't know, the the criminal charges against these two men create, trying to create a space within Oakland that they could afford and be creative in just seems really deeply misguided to me. I completely agree with you. And, you know, it's so much easier to talk about individual misguided people than to talk about cities that have misguided policies. And that's really what happened there. And what's really sad is after the ghost ship, the mayor of Oakland, Libby Schaaf, pledged that uh, don't worry, this won't lead to a crackdown on warehouses. We don't want to displace more people. But in fact, that's exactly what happened in Oakland. There was a way all the other owners were afraid they'd get in trouble. And instead of the city developing a program to bring the live work units that needed fire suppression systems and give them like financial assistance to keep these units, there was just mass displacement and, and there were of, of artists from Oakland. And that's not good for anybody. Um, so the homeless crisis in L.A. Um, seems similar to the homeless crisis that's happened in San Francisco, but um, on a much sort of larger scale. Um, what is what are the things that are being um, done to help that crisis? I mean, you, you talk about the, the proposal of a shelter that was uh, rejected in Venice Beach. Um, yeah. Uh, which was very frustrating to read um, because was, that's where people already are. But the right. idea of put, moving them in permanently just freaks everybody out. Um, so is there, as the problem gets worse, is there a conversation about what to do about the homeless population in Los Angeles or is it sort of circling uh, in, in these ways? Well, actually, since since writing the book about the situation in Venice, L.A. has been under a lot of pressure. They used to have a rule in L.A. where any member of the city council who wanted to oppose a homeless or affordable housing project in the district, all they, they had the individual veto to do so, which really makes no sense. And as I discussed in the book, a state law was passed, a state law was passed to prevent that veto. But due to the enormous homeless crisis in LA in two th in the last six, three or four months, there's been a number of shelters finally approved. The affordable housing project in Venice I write about is going forward, although, and even the shelter is opening up. So the problem has gotten so bad that they have finally, uh, through the mayoral invention and intervention in, in Los Angeles and its political leadership, political leaders have to, to force neighborhoods to do their fair share of services. Even in San Francisco, we have an incredible imbalance of where homeless housing and affordable housing and homeless services are. There's entire, the president of our current board of supervisors has announced he didn't, would never allow any homeless services in his district. This is progressive San Francisco, and that's who our president of the board of supervisors is. Someone who says they're not suitable for our neighborhood. That's not a good signal. And you also talk about the, the, the role of the mayors um, who are often very hands off in trying to convince these neighborhood associations um, to pass um, these new um, housing uh, projects and so on. Um, it does seem like there is a lack of um, real political will on these on these issues. Um, but what else can the mayors do in order to, I mean, do these no neighborhood associations just need um, to be convinced or like in this way of you talk about millennials convincing um, their NIMBY parents to become YIMBYs 
but uh, or does sort of a more structural approach of uh, taking away some of the power of these neighborhood associations? Well, I think the latter. Happen? One of the major points I make in the book, if anyone is listening to this who 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 lives in a city that has off-year city council local elections that are not tied in with state or national elections, they need to change that because the problem that was there in L.A. was that when city council members ran for office, the, the voter turnout, and I'm not making this as an actual number, was under routinely under 20% because they'd be in off-year elections. And the electorate was disproportionately older white homeowners who don't represent the, even their own neighborhoods. And so they've now changed that in LA and they, they've, they've made it so that the next local election will be in 2020. That means these council members and mayors have to be accountable to a broader constituency, a more tenant constituency, a more Latino constituency in L.A. And uh, I continue to see cities with these off-year elections, and they're just guaranteeing a disproportionate homeowner and affluent voting rights. Mm -hmm. Council members aren't going to care about tenants if they're not voting. One of the things that you don't address in your book um, is the sort of Airbnb phenomenon, or you talk about it um, uh, sort of briefly, but you don't right. give it that much, as much sort of um, uh, power as a lot of people sort of assume. Um, you're, you're absolutely correct. And, and, you know, it's because since, since Airbnb had to register in San Francisco and, and approve the and approve the registration and legalization of the units they 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 advertise. The issue has become nowhere near as controversial, and I know New York City has been trying to get that same registration requirement, so that there, there's some you know I, I think a lot of it's been overblown because so many of the Airbnb units are already occupied units and someone's renting a room as opposed to a vac often using a vacant unit is illegal to begin with. Many of the violations of, of short-term rental laws in all these cities are already illegal. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not a function of anything that Airbnb particularly has done except create a market for it, an easier market. But the registration requirement, is, as I described in the book, has made a huge difference. And I think that's why New York City activists are pushing so hard for it. So do you think that, I mean, Airbnb has been such a huge part of the conversation about gentrification over the last couple of years. Do you think it's being scapegoated in a, in a kind of way or that our attention should be more on um, building more housing um, and creating more housing stock uh, rather well, than the yeah looking at the short term? One of the ironies, if you look at the people in San Francisco who've been most aggressively opposed to Airbnb, these are people who oppose new market rate housing. Yet the units that Airbnb are taking off the market are all market rate housing. So, if if you don't believe supply matters, then Airbnb taking all these units off the market doesn't matter. I think supply does matter, and I think where Airbnb is taking units off the market, it's a problem. But where they're People renting, you know, people who have a one-bedroom apartment, they're renting a room while they're still living there to someone. I don't see how that's gentrification mm -hmm. because they, they can rent the room for any price to anybody, whether they're Airbnb or, or not. Uh, so we're not going to end the short-term rental industry. It's been going on. And I think that it's, it's, it's really, I don't give it the significance that many do for causing gentrification. Um, yeah, and I think it's also interesting how many people sort of need uh, now to Airbnb 
their bedroom um, in order to be able to afford a rental. <laughs> exactly. And you just raised a point that is often overlooked. I know I, we know people, especially seniors who, who are living on a fixed income on a pension who they see an opportunity. They have a two bedroom place and they think, hey, I can do Airbnb it. And obviously, this, and, and those are often not wealthy people renting out their their apartments and a room in their apartments. Um, when, when I see, especially in, uh, New York and, and I think this was in Seattle as well, people talking about, um, creating affordable housing. A lot of times what they were talking about was these sort of micro studios, um, these very, very small, like 200, 250 square feet places, um, that, uh, either had no kitchen or, um, had a very sort of, uh, limited, uh, space, you know, whatever, just see these tiny pods. Um, and, um, I just worry that when we talk about, uh, building new housing, we're sort of leaving out the dignity aspect of the housing. Um, so what does sort of, uh, affordable housing look like in a place like San Francisco or Seattle or New York? Well, just to tell you, the SRO housing that my organization leases, you know, the units are, say, 120 to 140 square feet. You can have a great unit at 200 square feet if it's, if it's designed properly. I think the, the reason, the economics of the affordable housing industry uh, end up rewarding smaller units. But what gets built by nonprofits in San Francisco is primarily family housing. So it's, it's you, you see most nonprofit organizations who build housing prefer to build for families because the existing supply where the, the private there's an existing thing called an SRO and we can lease it but there's no apartments we can lease so the only way you can get affordable housing for families is to build bigger units so most you see uh, the nonprofits build two to three bedroom units so they can have families who, who working in middle class and lower income families can afford to stay in the city mm -hmm. um, and with the um, sort of the affordable housing and the, the sort of uh, family, single family um, zoning laws, um, how do these the zoning laws begin to change? Um, well, this is like Minneapolis just got a lot of attention for changing their for eliminating their exclusionary zoning. And what a lot of people don't realize, I, there's people, there's activists who say, well, I'm not for market rate housing, but I'm for affordable housing. But they don't may not fully realize that. The same limits to San Francisco. In, in over half of San Francisco, you can't build an affordable housing project because it violates the zoning. So, you know, the, these exclusionary zoning which prohibits apartments in so many neighborhoods in Austin and 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 Seattle and Portland and L.A. and Berkeley and Oakland. They're basically saying, and if you want to build affordable housing, it's only going to be in these small number of neighborhoods because the rest of the city doesn't allow it. Now, does that make any sense? For a progressive city that's promoting, wants to promote inclusion and diversity to not let apartments be built in most of the city. Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about people that are being forced from um, forced from their homes through these uh, a lot of Ellis evictions and these sort of, you know, not given advance warning and all these sort of shady things that are that can then be sort of controlled and and. Um, fought against within the legal system through these nonprofits and legal organizations. But how likely is it that somebody going through a process can get help to the extent that, you know, some of these cases 
um, people were fighting for a decade. Um, how many people are able to be served in that way? And is there a need for more resources in that, in that field? Well, that's a great question. There's two elements of stopping evictions. One is the uh, increasingly popular uh, right to counsel, where a city like San Francisco fund legal counsel, and they fund our, they fund our, my organization. We have a legal office to do to represent these tenants. But there's also a very important point, which is that you can have all the right to counsel in the world, but if you don't have any rights, if a landlord has the right to double your rent and you can't afford to pay it. A lawyer is not going to stop you from being evicted for non-payment of rent. So you have to cities have to have both the right to counsel and rent control if they can do it and just cause eviction laws, because without any protections for tenants, it doesn't matter. The lawyer can't stop the eviction. And that that part of it is often forgotten as we talk about the right to counsel. You talk about. San Francisco as some it's a city that's improving um, in, in the housing situation. Um, and it's often so frequently held up as being, um, uh, you know, the, the example of everything that's wrong within a city. So can yeah. you talk about the, 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 the silver lining of, of the well, San Francisco rental market? As I, as I say in the book, San Francisco has replaced New York City as a poster child for unaffordability. But as I describe in Generation Price that, and people will be very surprised reading the book, we have the most far-reaching tenant protection and rental housing protection in the United States. No, no city has stronger tenant protections and, and, and protections for housing. And no city has, we do a lot for affordable housing. It's just we've had real estate pressures that's primarily caused by the fact that we went about 30 years without building much housing. And when you go 30 years where, where you have jobs and development and you don't build housing, eventually it catches up with you. And that's what happened in San Francisco. We just never... Because of anti-homeowner, anti-housing politics, to this day, we still have most of our city zones, so you can't build apartments. So it, that's really the crisis in San Francisco. It's more of a zoning and land use crisis. When people see our laws, there's every city in this country, every tenant city would love to have the kind of protections our tenants have in San Francisco, yet we have the highest rental market. If I could also mention before we end that, that people can... Uh, can learn more about the book at generationpricedout.com and sure. they can I, I write regularly about housing on Twitter at Beyond Cron. That's beyond C H R O N. So people can can keep in touch. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.